We're throwing off the filters of tradition and culture to discover what the Bible really says about relationships. Relationships with God, with ourselves, and with others. Welcome to this episode of Relationship Truth Unfiltered. Welcome. Today I'm honored to be talking with Rachel Del Hollander. Rachel's an attorney, author, advocate, and educator who is recognized as a leading voice on the topic of sexual abuse. Rachel's uniquely qualified to understand the realities facing survivors of sexual abuse and their path toward healing. If you recall, Rachel became known internationally in 2016 as the first woman to pursue criminal charges and speak publicly against USA gymnastics team doctor Larry Nassar, one of the most prolific sexual abusers in recorded history. As a result of her activism, over 300 women, including numerous Olympic medalists, came forward as survivors of Nassar's abuse eventually leading to his life imprisonment. Rachel not only battled tenaciously with Michigan State University for the survivors of Nassar's abuse, but she's also battled with church leaders who've ignored, minimized, or even vilified women coming forward reporting abuse. Rachel's written a compelling story of her experience in her book, What's a Girl Worth? My Story of Breaking the Silence and Exposing the Truth about Larry Nassar and USA Gymnastics. I first met Rachel when we worked together on a project, churchcares.com, with the goal to educate church leaders on the reality of abuse, the trauma of abuse, and what they might do differently so that they don't cause secondary harm to the victim who comes to them for help, justice, healing, and protection. So Rachel, I am so honored. Thank you for coming to share with us. In addition to all you do, you're also a mom to four littles. So I don't know how you juggle all those balls, but I give you kudos, girl. It's been busy, but it is absolutely worth it. Good. You know, Rachel, you and I could talk about so much, but what I want to focus our time together is on your work with the church leaders, because we want them to do better. And we want women and men who go to church leaders reporting or disclosing abuse to be seen, heard, valued, and protected. So Rachel, could we start by just you telling us more of your story as you decided to go public, even why you decided to go public with your own abuse by Larry Nasser, and invited other Olympians to join you? What happened? to bring that about and what happened when you started telling the truth? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the questions I get asked all of the time is what made you finally willing to speak up? How can we help survivors be willing to speak up? And I actually think that's the wrong question because by and large survivors are willing to speak up. It's that there aren't safe avenues for them to speak up. We haven't created systems and structures and individuals who can hear those disclosures and are prepared to help the survivors. The problem is not survivors' willingness. The problem is their access to avenues for safety. And that really was what I was waiting for for 16 years. It wasn't that I wasn't willing to speak up. It's that there was no mechanism to do so. I understood the reality of what I would be facing, what the societal response and the community response was going to be. Uh, the reality of speaking up against someone who is a beloved figure, the way institutions uh, circle around those abusers. Uh, and there just was no avenue for speaking up safely until I saw a newspaper article uh, that was done by the Indianapolis Star. And they had done a significant undercover investigation into USA Gymnastics. And they were reporting on the consistent failure uh, to report sexual abuse by coaches. They had literally been taking reports of abuse and stuffing them in a file cabinet for decades. Uh, and this wasn't a secret. Everybody knew that this was going on. There had been a literal book written about the cover-up of sexual abuse at USAG. But what was different this time is that the reporters had actually been able to get people to listen. The story was trending and they had put it together in a way that people could understand. Uh, and my abuser wasn't in that story. Nobody knew about him yet. 
but I looked at that and I said, this is, this is it. This is what I've been waiting for. This is a group that might be able to get the truth out. And so I immediately wrote to them and told them my story, told them what documentation and evidence I had and said, I'll come forward as publicly as necessary if you can just get the truth out. But I had to have that place to speak and to have a hope of being believed before I could take that step. And that's what so many survivors don't have and what I didn't have for almost two decades. That makes so much sense. And I just think of now how fearful it is to speak out in our culture right now, because is there a mechanism to be heard safely about whatever it is that we're disagreeing with or unhappy with? And so I can imagine something so personal and so devastating as sexual abuse would be very terrifying to speak up against someone who was well-known and well-loved in the community. It is. And that's what every survivor faces because we all see the same community response, right? Caring for the survivor requires something out of the community. It requires an emotional cost, a relational cost, often a practical cost. If you really believe that there's an abuser in your community, you have to do something about it. It requires something of you to believe. It doesn't require anything of us to side with the abuser. That's comfortable. That's safe. We don't have to leverage any relational capital. We don't have to follow through on any hard practical steps. It's easy to side with the abuser. And so what we see over and over and over again, no matter the community, is that the immediate response when a survivor discloses is that's not possible because. And then we either have reasons why we don't think this person could be an abuser or the abuse couldn't have happened like the survivor says it happened. Uh, or there's an immediate attack on the survivor. She's bitter. She's angry. Uh, she wants to tear down a man of God. She's upset with the church. She's in it for money. Uh, this is her her attempt to, to grab onto fame. She wants attention. The same attacks come against survivors, no matter the, the quadrant that they're speaking out in. And so survivors know that this is what they're facing. And the reality is that from a criminal standpoint, you know, as, as much as we like to say, well, if that was true, why didn't you report it? Here's the reality. On any given year, out of every 300 rapes reported to the police, the maximum amount of offenders who are going to receive conviction in jail time is 25. 25 out of 300. Most wow. years, we average between five and nine. Out of every 300 rapes reported to the police, on average, five to nine are going to face conviction in jail time. So the reality is that survivors don't have a safe place to speak up. Our halls of justice are not open many times to what they've had to say. We don't have trained police forces and trained prosecutors who are motivated to handle these allegations. And we're faced with a community that is immediately going to attack as soon as we speak up. And until those things change, there is no safe place for survivors to speak up and have any help, hope of being helped. So when you saw that newspaper article and wrote the article, or wrote to them and said, hey, I have a story too, what happened? What happened after that when you started to tell the truth? I was very fortunate to have all of the right pieces that I needed to have. And that's one of the areas where I look back and you just see God's sovereignty over that story. But the reality is that it took 16 years to have those right pieces. So I had mm -hmm. a journalism team that was able to put the story together very well and communicate it in a way that made people go, oh, this might actually be true. I had a police detective who was incredibly motivated to find the truth and cared and pursued it like it mattered. I had a prosecutor who came in and said, I will take those case files and I will fight for every one of them. But there were so many times, even within my story, that we almost didn't have that. We had first a local prosecutor who was not going to pursue charges, even though it was already an international story. 
And if we hadn't had a police chief who picked up the phone and called the attorney general and an attorney general who said, I'll send my best and his assistant attorney general, who really was his best, who came in and said, I'll fight for every one of them. Even with everything I had done, we still would not have seen the results that we saw. So I was very fortunate in that I had every single piece that I needed to have. Again, most survivors don't have that. And even with that, the community response was immediately vitriolic. She's in it for money. She's angry. She must want this fame. She's in it for attention. Uh, Attacks that I had possibly even planted some of the child pornography on Larry's computer. Wow. Uh, It was just, it was everything I expected it to be. It was vicious against me, against my parents, my husband. It was everything I expected it to be, even though I had all of the right pieces in place. Rachel, you were a Christian. You were going to church, I assume, at the time. I know that you've been church involved for a long time. What was your church's response as you began to get this publicity and began to speak out about this? You know, I don't think they knew what to do. We did not receive any care. We weren't put on the prayer chain. There was very little reach out, um, and and part of that was because I had been advocating for victims of church sexual abuse, not victims of anyone at my church, but victims of uh, Sovereign Grace churches, and our church was a large supporter of Sovereign Grace Ministries, and that did not go well. My husband and I had been ostracized and isolated from the rest of our church community because of my advocacy on behalf of those survivors. And so we ended up losing uh, our entire church community at the time when we needed them the most. And that was deeply painful. I imagine it was. And why do you think it is so hard for churches to do what Jesus says and protect the oppressed, whether it's a vulnerable child or a woman in an abusive marriage? Why is it that we rather protect the powerful oppressor than come alongside the oppressed, which is Jesus's heart to do. I think there are a lot of reasons that we get this wrong in the church. And ultimately at the core, a lot of them are theological. We have an extreme imbalance in how we understand concepts of unity and division. And oftentimes we prioritize unity as if it is a goal in and of itself, rather than recognizing that the unity Christ talks about is unity around the truth. And so what ends up happening is that the survivor, the whistleblower who speaks up begins being viewed as somebody who's divisive rather than somebody who is calling us to unity around the truth uh, and calling us to bring the darkness into light. We have an extreme imbalance oftentimes in how we understand authority, imbalances in how we understand male-female authority and uh, concepts of submission that put women in a place where where things that are going wrong are ultimately uh, placed on their doorstep uh, as if uh, a proper response, if she's just submissive enough, her husband will change. Uh, We miscategorize sin and abuse. We look at things that are unhealthy in a marriage and we're not trained to know where that crosses the line into, hey, we're all sinners, into Actually, this is an abusive relationship. This is not just, hey, we're all sinners and we all need to grow. These are patterns of abuse. This is narcissistic behavior. Uh, This is sociopathic behavior. This is abuse. We're not trained in, in identifying those dynamics. And so we often miscategorize them. Part of the reason we're not trained in identifying those dynamics is because we haven't prioritized it. It's also sometimes because there is an imbalance in how we understand doctrines of sufficiency of scripture. 
Uh, it's not uncommon to hear a church leader say, well, scripture is sufficient. I don't need to learn about dynamics of abuse. I don't need to talk to a psychologist who understands narcissistic behavior. I don't need to talk to a trauma therapist uh, or a specialist to understand what abuse disclosures look like. The scripture is sufficient. And we don't, we don't take that approach for anything medical. You know, nobody says I'm having heart palpitations, but scripture is sufficient. So I don't need to talk to a cardiologist. Uh, so it, at the core, this is not an issue with sufficiency of scripture. It's an issue with our theology of how we understand sufficiency of scripture. Uh, and so there are, there are a lot of theological issues that are at the root, miscategorizing or misunderstanding concepts of justice and forgiveness, where forgiveness and justice are almost viewed as dichotomous to each other. And survivors are told, hey, if you're walking in forgiveness, you should not be pursuing divorce. You should not be pursuing uh, a civil justice or criminal justice. You need to forgive. And so when we get those theologies wrong, we not only misrepresent the gospel and we misrepresent the Godhead and the very nature and character of Jesus Christ, but because we're misrepresenting those things, we are causing incredible damage to God's image bearers and, to, and oftentimes to his daughters. And so at the oh. core... It's theology. You know, you said that so, so powerfully well. But even a cursory read of Proverbs is a, is a pretty powerful indictment yeah. against the consequences and impact of foolish and wicked, evil people on others with their words. The godless destroy their friends. You know, and so even if we were to believe that the Bible is sufficient for us to navigate some of this. The Bible is very clear that it wants to promote support for the oppressed and to not support the oppressor. Power over someone is never the dynamic of biblical leadership. So authority is not, I get to rule over you and boss you around and oppress you and suppress you and abuse you because I'm the leader. And so where do churches get so confused, even reading the Bible wrong um, on these issues? It just, it confounds me, Rachel. I just keep scratching my head and say, do they not read the same Bible I read? I agree. I wholeheartedly agree. You cannot read any part of scripture and not walk away with a deep and rich understanding of God's heart for justice. You know, he is described as a God of justice. It's part of his character. The concept of the gospel and core gospel truth uh, is centered around the concept of justice. There is justice coming. And so we need eternal forgiveness. We need a sacrifice to stand in our place. Justice does not mean that when you say the right things, the consequences are absolved or it means like, or, or it doesn't matter anymore. And yet you're right. You can see all of these patterns in scripture, and yet we're still getting it wrong. And I think that really comes down ultimately to what we want to see in scripture. Oftentimes those who are in authority tend to emphasize an imbalance and a misunderstanding of what authority looks like and tend to create structures where authority isn't servant-hearted and it isn't focused towards justice. It's focused towards, I'm the one that's given the authority to deal with this. And if you would just respond in a godly way, this would change. We often create theologies that are convenient for us. And it is not convenient to pursue God's heart for justice. It requires something out of us. It requires sitting in the suffering. It requires intentionality. It requires a loss oftentimes of 
relationships uh, and, and things that we would want to treasure and leverage on our own behalf. Um, and we, ha- we, we are sinners and we often create a theology that is convenient for us rather than a theology that God has shown us. You know, you said that so powerfully. And I think of this idea that we talk about in our ministry of um, sacrificial suffering and, you know, the sacrificial suffering is a biblical term, biblical theology that we're to suffer, but what we're to suffer for is the very thing that you just said. If we have to speak up, if we do speak up, if we speak the truth, if we're striving for justice and if we implement consequences for wrongdoing or we allow the consequences to be present for wrongdoing, somehow we get we turn into uh, bad guys and we suffer for that. But that's suffering for doing right, for righteousness sake, for doing good, for standing up for truth. Suffering to allow oppressors and abusers to continue to do harm makes no sense to me to continue to do that. It's enabling sin to flourish. Oh, it, it absolutely is. And that's that's what we see. What you've described is what we see in how Christ himself models authority. How he comes as the servant. He comes on behalf of uh, those who are oppressed and marginalized uh, and hurting and suffering. And he commands us to enter into that with him. And we are told that that loving sacrificially is going to come with a cost, that it's going to seem foreign to our communities. But we're also told that that kind of love is what is going to define us as Christians. And so when we don't do that, um, when we create a theology that is convenient for us, that gives us the power that we want and the comfort that we want and the ease that we want, it's very easy to dress it up in misapplied, imbalanced, biblical sounding terms, but it's not the heart of God. And it's not the model that Christ has set for us. And we should expect that when we love like Christ loves and we enter into that suffering and we stand for what is true and we bring the darkness into the light, we should expect that that is going to come with a high cost. And it does, but that is, that is what Christ has modeled for us. And that is what we are called to. And we are to view that as a privilege to be able to stand in the gap and to enter into suffering and to be the hands and feet of Christ. That is a gift. That is a privilege. And oftentimes we don't view it that way. Not really. Yeah. Or we view it in a distorted way that I'm, you know, suffering to keep my marriage together when in fact you need to tell the truth and then see what happens to your marriage. Because telling the truth gives your husband an opportunity to wake up or gives the abuser an opportunity to wake up. And it doesn't mean you continue having a relationship with that person. It may not be possible, but their soul and their relationship with God is far more important. And so by speaking the truth and standing up instead of just willingly sacrificing and suffering and allowing the abuse to continue is that noble sacrifice. But we've got it all twisted around in our theology. Are you living with someone who has some real problems? It has a huge impact on everything, doesn't it? Especially you. Have you done everything in your power to get him to see what he's doing and nothing changes? And let me guess, the church's advice is to suck it up and submit, forgive, sacrifice yourself. But all that's doing is making him more of a monster and you more of a resentful victim. Friend, there are real biblical answers to what you're going through. And Leslie, She'll be sharing them in a free webinar on August 17th at 12 p.m. and 7.30 p.m. Eastern. The title of the webinar, I'm not okay when you're not okay. 
defining my problem, your problem, and our problem. Leslie will even answer your questions live. You're listening to this podcast because you know the kind of value there is in Leslie's teaching. Don't miss this webinar. Go to leslievernick.com forward slash okay to register. That's leslievernick.com forward slash okay. We'll see you there. This brings me to our next question, Rach. I think, I think women get a different message on that than men do. And yes. you wrote this book, What's a Girl Worth? And later, What's a Little Girl Worth? And I would love to hear why that was important to you to really talk about that. Because I do think that in the church, we're valuable, but not as valuable as a man is. And so we're not as worth sticking up for, or we should sacrifice and suffer more to keep our husband out of the jail or out of hot water, out of public shame. And tell me what you wanted to communicate in that book. What was the heart of why What's a Girl Worth important to you? So the motivation for for both the children's book and the memoir was ultimately the same. But for the little girl's book and the little boy's book, just to start discussing those core concepts of identity, where does your value come from? Can it be damaged by something that is done to you? How much are you worth? Are you worth, little girl, little boy, are you worth the sacrifice of speaking up? Are you worth the time and the effort and the cost that it's going to take to stand on your behalf? And to start that discussion with children of where their value really comes from. Is it something that you earn? Is it something that can be taken from you? Because those are core concepts that all of us have to wrestle through. I think children's books oftentimes speak to the heart cry that even adults have. How many of us don't struggle with that question of where does my value come from? Where does my identity come from? What does success look like? How do I measure that? How do I metric that? Those are core concepts that we will wrestle through our entire lives. And so to be able to start those questions early uh, with children and to be able to lay that foundation of where their identity comes from and where their value comes from helps prepare them to be able to, to stand up and to speak up when they are treated in ways uh, that don't represent them being made in God's image in the Imago Day. And for the memoir, it was very much the same, but even much more than that. Part of what I really wanted to be able to do with that was just kind of lift the veil on what it looks like. What is the cost for a survivor when they speak up? What is going to happen to them? What does it look like to go through the court process and to go through an investigation? And what are the realities for survivors in these positions? What are, what are abuse dynamics? What, did, what do they look like? What does grooming look like? What does trauma look like? How do we understand? And to really bring, bring people into that suffering, to be able to show them what it looks like, to be able to put words to those concepts and ideas and illustrate them in a way that hopefully make people understand okay, if it was that difficult for her, imagine how much more difficult it is for somebody that doesn't have the resources. Because here's the reality. I was the perfect victim. I came from a stable middle-class white two-parent home. And I was a stable middle-class white married mother of three. I had no mental health diagnoses. I had never been on medication other than an antibiotic. Uh, We weren't in debt. We had never been in debt. I didn't have any of the normal things that get weaponized against survivors. And I was a trained attorney, so I knew how to navigate the system. I knew how to speak the language. I knew what was coming my way. And I had 
every support system that a survivor could want, loving family on both sides and a supportive husband. I had all of those things and look what it still took. Look at what the cost was. Look at how hard it was. Look at all the pieces that had to fall into place that were outside of my control. And every time that it almost went sideways and for people to be able to understand that and say, okay, if it was that difficult for somebody in this position, how much more difficult is it for somebody that doesn't have those support systems and those safety networks and that training? And to start asking that question, how can I start creating those systems? How can I be the support system for a survivor that doesn't have it? How can I be some of those practical resources for a survivor that can't go through this, this way? And to start making that connection, because that's really what we all have to do. We have to learn how to enter into that suffering and start asking, what does it look like to love the way Christ loved? And if we can start understanding the paths that others have had to walk and what that looks like, that helps us put hands and feet to what it means to love like Jesus loves. So you've been advocating for this for some time now, since 2016 and on. What have you seen positive in terms of growth in churches for doing the very thing you're talking about right now, of being able to support the victim for standing alongside of her, of giving her resources that she might need to come forward? What have you seen positive that's happening? Because there's still a lot of negative, tons of negative, but what's what's going on right now currently that we don't know about that could be encouraging to our listeners that somebody is doing something out there different. That's positive. Yeah. You know, you're right. I do see, and I, and I know you see so much of the damage that comes from churches, but I also do get the privilege of being able to see the ones that really do love like Jesus loves and that lead in a way that is full of integrity and humility and just firmness of conviction and true care for the marginalized and the vulnerable. I do get to see that. Uh, And so there are, I think there are a number of hallmarks that you see in those churches. And the first of it is just intentionality, realizing what you don't know, and then seeking to learn that thing, right? Because here's the reality. Pastors are virtually never trained in trauma dynamics. That's not a censure on them. That's not an attack. That's a reality that we can't all be experts in everything. We just can't, right? So we have to intentionally seek out learning from those who are. There are many, 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 many things that I don't know. And so I have to go and say, hey, help me think this through. Here's what I'm, you know, here's what I'm dealing with. You have more experience in this area. Help me get this right. And so the first thing, the first thing that I do get the privilege of seeing uh, are pastors that come to the table and say, man, I want to do this well but I don't know what that looks like. Help me figure it out. And are intentional every step of the way. What kind of things can I say? What should I look for? How can I communicate about these issues to my church? Uh, And pastors that really take that and learn from it and then engage with intentionality. I have seen a lot of pastors start doing a much better job preaching on these topics, starting to engage the texts of scripture and talk about the reality of abuse and oppression and what that looks like. Uh, and what that can look like in a marriage or a domestic violence situation. And every single time, I, the number of pastors that have come up to me and said, I preached for the first time on this, and I said three sentences, just acknowledging the reality. And I have been inundated right. with calls from women you know, because they finally took the time to learn and then to message, hey, I'm a safe person to speak to. I understand enough of the dynamics that if you talk to me, I will be able to understand what you're going through. And so just that intentionality of help me get this right 
and then let's communicate. Let's, let's approach this at, on, at an intentional level and opening places for survivors to speak is the very first step that churches can take. Uh, and the other thing is we do this with other things, right? Most churches have all kinds of practical things in place to minister to the needs of their congregation. You know, if you have uh, a bunch of young mothers in your church or, or women who are expecting babies, chances are you have a meal train, right? You have care groups, you have, you have some kind of mechanism for, hey, this woman just had a baby, let's get a meal train going. You know, if you have a lot of people in your church that have come out of losing a spouse or someone close to them dying, uh, you might have a grief support group. You have Bible studies or community groups that target different areas of needs and interests but we don't tend to have that level of intentionality when it comes to sexual and domestic violence, even though we know that up to a third of women in the congregation statistically have experienced either sexual violence or domestic violence or both, often both, because most domestic violence survivors have experienced forms of sexual violence. Under normal circumstances, if we looked out uh, at a church and said a third of my congregation is facing this issue, we would start asking the question, how do I need to minister to them? If a third of my population is facing this issue, how do I minister to them? We need that level of intentionality for sexual and domestic violence, learning uh, how to talk about these issues and then engaging with intentionality. Uh, and then I have also had the privilege of seeing uh, churches take some very practical steps when they have had these women come forward. I have seen pastors who have said, hey, we are going to pay your legal fees so that we can get you a protection order uh, and we can try to get your children out of this abusive situation. I have seen pastors come forward and pay and, and pay for counseling and therapy with the licensed trauma counselors for these women and these children, either those who are sexually abused in the church or just members who are coming out of domestic violence situations uh, and to provide in very practical ways, putting together networks of resources for these mamas coming out of this, this space, people who can help take care of their children after school uh, so that they can work to pay the bills. Um, meal trains so that if these mamas have a court date or something turns their world upside down, they at least don't have to think about how am I going to feed my kids tonight. Um, I've seen pastors who have helped women secure good, safe housing so that they can leave a dangerous situation and they can get their kids out of that situation, taking very, very practical steps to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And that's been a blessing to witness. I have seen churches stand in the gap for sexual abuse victims who have been silenced by NDAs and say, look, this, this, she's telling the truth. She needs to be able to speak. And if you come after her former pastor perpetrator, we're going to defend her and we will pay her NDA so that she can speak publicly. Mm -hmm. uh, I've seen a significant number of pastors start engaging in legislative work, uh, particularly focusing on criminalizing clergy sexual, sexual abuse. Um, and that, that to me has been a real hallmark. Um, most of those pastors are actually coming from the Southern Baptist convention and that's a real hallmark because that's putting their money where their mouth is, right? That's not just paying lip service. That's taking very concrete steps um, to take action that is going to ultimately affect some of their peers. Uh, and so I, I am seeing some very encouraging things happening in the church, looking to meet the needs of survivors on an intensely practical level and to truly be the hands and feet of Jesus, to stand in the gap, to bring the darkness into the light. And it is always such a privilege to be able to witness that and to witness uh, just the redemption that comes in the survivor's life from being cared for that way and being met in their suffering, uh, from seeing a tangible representation of a God who cares and who stoops low 
and who calls to the vulnerable and the oppressed. When you see churches do that, it is an absolutely beautiful thing to witness. Oh, you said it so well. I have absolutely no way to say it any differently, but that would be like heaven. That would be like heaven, wouldn't it? And to say to someone, you're worth fighting for, you're worth helping, you're worth believing. Um, That is such a healing balm to someone who's been treated as if they're a nobody. And they are a somebody in God's eyes. And God wants us to treat them as a somebody in in the church's eyes. And when churches actually do that, instead of saying this person and their reputation is more important than your safety and your care is so healing. And when it's not done, it's so damaging because not only did you get abused, but now the very people that you trusted to help you are saying, you're not worth it. You're not worth believing. You're not worth helping. You're not worth creating programs to support you. Um, You're not worth helping you legally or with a meal. And that is secondary trauma. Oh, 100%. And it also pushes survivors from the gospel, and understandably so, because the reality is that darkness and light exist in opposition to each other, right? And so when we when we stand at the pulpit and we, and we bear Christ's name and we say, God is a God of righteousness, God is a God of justice, God is holy, God is a servant, God is loving, he is safe, he is trustworthy, he's a refuge, and we talk about all the characteristics of God. And then by our words and actions, we turn around and say, and actually what happened to you doesn't matter that much. What we have done is created a God who really doesn't care. Yeah. And we have, and we have dimmed the beauty and the goodness and the glory of God by dimming the darkness. We as Christians should be the most equipped to call sexual and domestic violence <clears throat> evil in, in every form. We should be the most equipped to say that if we really believe we have a God of holiness and we really believe we have a God of justice and we really believe that Christians are defined by their love and that God is a refuge and he's trustworthy. We should be the most equipped to condemn abuse in all its forms and to demonstrate by our words and actions, this is something that God cares about. And when we don't do that, we are misrepresenting the very nature of God and the very nature of the gospel. And the survivor is left with a God who doesn't really seem to care that much and who doesn't call something very evil, really evil at all, because those of us who bear his name don't seem to care, don't care very much and don't call what was evil, evil. Oh, so true. So true. Thank you so much for those wise words. I think it has I hope it has stimulated those who are not abused, who listen to this podcast to say, wow, how might I care better? How might I listen better? How might I believe harder and serve those who have been abused and oppressed? Because that is the hands and feet of Jesus to those who have been so damaged and hurt by others. So Rachel, thank you so much for being a part of our podcast. Is there any final words that you'd like to share with us or final wisdom that you can leave us for both the people helper, the pastor, the counselor who might be listening, as well as the victim who's saying, yay, someone's listening. Someone's on my side. I think for the survivors, um, the thing that has been most important for me uh, just to, to be able to rest in is that God cares. Right. And when you can, you can hold to what is true and you can grieve the damage in ways that are non-destructive, that's foundational to healing. Right. And so to be able to know that, that you can, that the truth is not dependent 
on the societal response you receive, that your healing is not dependent on the societal response you receive, uh, that the truth exists and your value exists independent of all of those things because it's created by God. Um, And to be able to rest in that, to hold to what is true, to be able to speak the truth, to be able to grieve that damage in ways that are non-destructive and to, and to know that we can, we can identify the darkness because the light really does exist. Right. And so we can grieve that darkness and we can also find hope in the existence of the light. Um, It gives you the freedom to grieve in ways that aren't destructive. And it also helps point you to the hope that still exists, even in those darkest moments. Right. And so for myself as a survivor, that's been really critically important. And then to those who are seeking to understand and to walk alongside survivors, I would just reemphasize this is a gift. The ability to be the hands and feet of Christ and to stand with the vulnerable and the oppressed and to bring the darkness into light, it is a privilege to participate in redemptive work Um, and, and to do it with all your heart and all your energy. Amen to that. Rachel, would you mind closing in prayer for the ones who are listening who are victims who are just saying, this woman gave me hope that... I am not alone, and I can get through this. Absolutely. Dear God, I just thank you for the time that we have had today. And I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you are a refuge, that you are trustworthy, uh, that you care for us as gently as a mother holds her baby on her knees, that you are like a mother bird gathering her chicks under her wings. I thank you for those images that you have given us in scripture of your tenderness and your care. Um, And Father, I recognize that so often those things are misrepresented and twisted uh, by the church and by those who bear your name. And so I pray for those who have suffered, uh, that they would know the reality of your compassion and your safety, uh, that they would be able to see the way uh, that we have twisted those ideas uh, and have not represented you well, and to be able to know that, that that was wrong that that's not who you are, that that does not represent your heart, Um, and to be able to feel uh, the safety and the care and the compassion uh, and the trustworthiness that you are and that you bring, uh, and that you would bring deep comfort uh, to those who have suffered, that they would know you are the God of justice uh, who is coming back wearing white robes with a sword to bear uh, justice for those who have been harmed, that that's how much this matters to you and that they would be able to rest in that. And I do pray that you would raise up advocates for these, those who have suffered, that you would raise up those who are going to come alongside them uh, and provide them with care and practical help and be your hands and feet, uh, and that you would bring deep rest to their souls and also to their bodies. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Rachel. That's my privilege. Thank you for listening to Relationship Truth Unfiltered. Remember to sign up for Leslie's free webinar on August 17th. Even if you can't make it, there will be a replay sent to those who register. Just go to lesliefernick.com forward slash okay. Until next time, may God bless your relationships with him, with yourself, and with others.